Hey, welcome back, everyone. New episode of Mike Adelic. I'm your host, Mike Brancatelli. Thanks for joining us. Uh, if you're new to the show, uh, you're here for the first time. Basically, this is a psychedelically minded uh, podcast. We we talk about issues, current events, situations, things, happenings, you know, whatever, from a psychedelic perspective, uh, with a focus on on cognitive cognitive liberty, cognitive freedom for all human beings. Um, as I like to say, and uh, as you hear in the in the show intro, so so today's episode is not one of these you know just kind of all over the place me high rambling getting my thoughts out stream of consciousness thingamadoos. Today we have an interview, uh, and it was a great interview. I had an awesome conversation um, with uh, Robert Barnhart, and if you don't know who he is, he is he basically. Um, Film well, he's a lot of things. I mean, he's on the board of Maps. He's on the board of Hefter Institute. Uh, you know, you'll hear all this stuff in the in the interview. But he's a psychedelic filmmaker who's revolutionizing uh, the way that the world understands psilocybin. You know, magic mushrooms. And his film is called A New Understanding: uh, The Science of Psilocybin. I, it's just such an important film. Really moved me. Really, you know, just excellent, excellent, uh, much needed uh, film. So I, uh, I'm going to get to the interview, uh, in a little bit, or, you know, it was more of like a conversation, but, uh, you know, I'm definitely asking questions in an interview style. I'm no, uh, I'm no Charlie Rose, but you know, just keeping it, uh, keeping it casual, but keeping it informative and, and hopefully the content is good and you guys like it and enjoy it. And, uh, and that, that's the goal here is really to just spread the message and, and just, you know, get, get this stuff out there and get people talking and thinking about this stuff. And like Robert says, you know, just get, get a new understanding of, of, uh, of psychedelics and, and how they can help people and, and help us, uh, in our lives and, and, and with the world. And, so if you do like the show, uh, just go to iTunes. Just leave me a review. I think we have 38 reviews now, ratings and reviews. They're all positive. I can't believe nobody has anything negative to say. I mean, it's unbelievable. I, I feel so uh, so lucky. You know, it's awesome. I mean, people message me all the time. It's, it's really, you guys have no idea. It makes my day. Uh, anytime I get a message from somebody or when I go and I check the iTunes um, and I see that there's a new review... It's so fucking cool. I mean, I just, I just, I love it so much. I mean, it's really, it's really inspiring, you know, that you guys are getting value out of this and that you're taking the time to, to leave a rating or a review or you're taking the time to message me. And you know, if you've messaged me, I message you back. It might not be right away, but I will message you back. And uh, so you can contact me, you know, on Facebook or you can email me. You, if you go to my website, I have all that information there, mikebrank.com. And, um, and yeah, so that really helps the show. And and you know, I think today's conversation was really great. And when you when you when you leave a rating and a review on iTunes, I mean it it just it really really helps us because, you know, people go there and they see, you know, what's this show about? You know, is this psychedelic lunatic, you know, what's he talking about? Well, they go there and they say, wow, you know, five stars and, and you know, almost 40 reviews, uh, you know, and growing. I mean, that's such a big thing. And I, I can't tell you how much it means to me. I mean, really, it's, it's just, uh, you know, when I'm doing this show, I'm doing this not for me, really. I mean, I mean, yeah, it's for me, obviously for me. But I mean, like, I, you know, 
if if somebody out there is really benefiting and 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 getting something really valuable out of it i mean that's that that means the world to me i mean if 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 i didn't have to survive off money if i could just survive off of people telling me that they got value out of what i did and leaving ratings and reviews then you know that would be great you know i mean that would be awesome but uh unfortunately you know we need to we need to make money too but anyway that's but for now the best way that you can help the show is just leaving a rating and a review on iTunes. It's really easy to do. You don't even actually you don't even have to leave a, a review. You can just leave a rating. Just go there and click five stars. All right, enough of the enough of the you know whatever that kind of stuff. But what I was saying is that does help the show because people go there and then they see who's on the show and they see who's reviewing it and so that's kind of a way that we're able to book like I'm able to get uh you know guests like Robert. And, and much more. So, you know, if you guys want to hear interesting conversations like the one that you're about to hear more often, um, let me know and, and, and leave those ratings and reviews and we'll grow this show. We'll get it bigger and we'll start to, to really expand and, uh, your mind will expand and then the planet will expand and then we'll be living on Jupiter and we'll be recording from there. We'll be recording from Jupiter's moons, uh, one day. All right, and with that being said, I will bore you no more with my requests for promotion and uh, reviews and all that nonsense. Here's my conversation with Robert Barnhart. Enjoy. Psychedelics are illegal not because a loving government is concerned that you may jump out of a third-story window. Psychedelics are illegal because they dissolve opinion structures and culturally laid down models of behavior and information processing. They open to us the possibility that everything we know is wrong. We don't need new laws that control our consciousness and rigidly place it in a prison. Cognitive liberty. The fact that as adults, if we're not hurting anybody else, we should have the right to explore the contours of our own consciousness without any mediation or legislation on the part of somebody else. Reject authority. Authority is a lie. Is a Information is power, but we have to seize, seize the opportunity. The opportunity. The opportunity. Yeah, I mean, the, I just think this is such a huge, I mean, just monumentally important thing uh, that, that, that touches a lot of different facets of what it means to be alive as a human being. And, you know, I mean, the psychedelic experience, I noticed that, uh, Robert, uh, that you, you uh, I was looking up your bio, and you, you have a, uh, a degree in comparative religion, is that right? Yes, that's correct. I have a degree in comparative religion from Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. Interesting, um, yeah. I, yeah. I graduated back in 1974, and um, it was out of some experiences that I had as a teenager when I was in high school that were somewhat, um, well, they, they were, um, had, were of the quality of an epiphany, but also very confusing, and they leaded me to 
study um, uh, comparative religion when I was in university to be able to begin to understand or get some understanding of what those experiences were about. Yeah, and you, I mean, understanding is the perfect. I mean, it, it's it sounds so simple when you say understand. You know, people say that say that word like every day. Do you understand? Do you understand? Yeah, I understand. But to really, really understand, and I think that that this is a perfect name for the film that you made, a new understanding, uh, the science of of psilocybin, because you know it is kind of hard for a lot of people to really understand what 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 this stuff is and and what what it can do for you. And I, I had a I had a very profound experience um, as well. You know, when I was like teenager in college so that kind of set me on on a different path and I'm wondering like how how is it that uh like how did you really get started in making this kind of like a career that's a great question um that goes back to uh, about 1984 and I was seeing a uh, family uh a family therapist, a licensed psychologist, for some issues with my stepfather. And um, in the course of that, um, uh, uh, it's real traditional family therapy. And uh, I was about 28, 29 years old. And I was talking to this therapist and he, um, I opened up to him about my experiences in high school, Mike, and uh, the nature of them. And he said, this is the only thing I've seen you get um, <clears throat> passionate about mm. <clears throat> what, why don't you see what's happening in the field? Now, mind you, this is 1984. To my knowledge, there was no field of psychedelic research or study. <laughs> right. I, I, I said, field? He said, yeah, see what's happening. So I said, okay. So I this is how I got started. So I wrote some letters. I thought, who, how, how do, what do I, there was no internet back then. What do I do? Or the very beginnings of an internet, um, but not what we have today. Um, so I wrote a letter, some letters to um, uh, Dr. Timothy Leary and um, uh, Dr. Andy Weil and some other people that came to mind in the field. And uh, Dr. Weil and uh, Dr. Leary wrote me back. Um, Dr. Leary wrote me a, a handwritten letter. It was uh, um, very supportive. I wish I still had it today, but psychedelic medicines are not a panacea or a cure-all cure for the problems in life. And um, that letter seemed to have disappeared with my first divorce. Mm. But I did. So that, continuing with your question, I can sum this sum this up fairly briefly. Um, um, so, so Dr. Whale, um, Timothy Leary wrote me back, and some other people wrote me back, and they put me in touch with um, with a number of things. I went out to Esalen Institute in Big Sur and took some uh, uh, workshops with uh, Terence McKenna and uh, Dr. Stanislav Groff, which were very eye-opening for me. Dr. Groff at the time told me I needed more experience, which was uh, um, interesting to me, but the the nutshell of this is they put me in touch with a young man at the time named um, uh, Rick Doblin, and Rick was a uh, undergraduate at I believe it was New College in Sarasota. He went on to get his uh, his uh, PhD in public 
policy with a specialty in, uh, in uh, uh, medicines and drugs from Harvard University. And when Rick and I got in touch, he was just on the verge of starting the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies um, in order to move MDMA, which is known on the street as uh, ecstasy, the, the pharmaceutical medicine is perhaps a bit different because it's pure. Um, MDMA ha has shown that it has some useful um, uh, therapeutic applications, and Rick wanted to move it out of ske from Schedule 1 to um, into Schedule 2, where it could be prescribed as a medication. Um, and he's been very successful at that. If we come up to present time, he's getting ready to move from MAPS is getting ready to move from phase two studies into phase three studies. And I could explain that if need be. But let's go back in the very beginning then. Um, uh, Rick did found MAPS in 1985 and opened a drug master file with the Federal Drug Administration. And um, um, the, uh, the FDA <clears throat> approved the beginning of studies with MDMA for um, MDA therapy for therapeutic use. They approve the beginning of these studies, phase one. So the, what that means is MAPS needed to dose or treat rats with MDMA and then sacrifice them and do an autopsy, um, inspect their brains and make sure there's no brain damage or, um, or, or atrophy of a uh, what it, the synapses and the neuroreceptors. And uh, with, with a sense of humor, I can say that uh, Rick definitively showed with MAPS that it's totally safe at normal doses to uh, for rats to take MDMA and there'll be no, uh, uh, no brain damage. So if any of you have rats that you're concerned about taking MDMA, don't worry. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I saw, you know, there's a little uh, rat that runs around in my apartment here in New York City. I think he's going to a rat rave every night, you know, taking MDMA. So <laughs> I'm a yeah. little concerned. I'm not concerned anymore. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so I helped Rick with those very beginning studies. And that's how I started my my career with it was uh, um, uh, helping in a small way to help fund these initial studies. And uh, I'm still involved in that to some extent. I'm a board member of MAPS, mm -hmm. but um, some people um, even more blessed or fortunate that myself with a similar vision have stepped up to the plate to, uh, to help fund this work, which is very deeply appreciated. And uh, MAPS always appreciates um, uh, funding. A phase three study that we're getting ready to go into um, bare bones to do it with private funding costs somewhere around $20 million. And, uh, it's quite an effort for a small, um, institution getting, getting private, private funding. Um, yeah, so that's, that's how I started, um, with, uh, um, with maps. And then in the mid, uh, early to mid nineties, um, Dave Nichols, a uh, former mm -hmm. professor from Purdue University, started the Hefter Research Institute. Right, yeah. Uh, primarily to study, from a scientific aspect, how do these medicines work 
in the human body, with the human mind, what's the mind-body interaction? How are these affecting the neurotransmitters, our synapses, um, and how do they work? What, what can we know about them, and what can we learn if we do just good science on this? So um, the Hefter Research Institute began doing that and um, um, working with psilocybin. They felt psilocybin, or I'm a board member of Hefter also, so that psilocybin, um, it's a shorter acting psychedelic um, and uh, perhaps a bit more manageable than some of them. Um, so that's the one that they've worked with um, uh, primarily with um, anxiety in terminal cancer patients. Right. And uh, more recently uh, with uh, uh, tobacco addiction and looking at a PTSD, autism, um, obsessive compulsive disorder and uh, uh, um, eating eating disorders. Um, what what uh, I could say uh, puts a, a limit, if you will, on what can be done is the funding. Um, these uh, uh, doctors don't get paid for what they're doing, and we we need funding to do it. So they're the uh, the uh, research is very promising. And there's some good protocols out there to study and uh, do research on. But again, there's the funding issue. Um, a phase two study, which is a smaller pilot study to show basic efficacy, is going to run somewhere um, in the 800 to uh, you know a million plus range to do a study. So again, it's a fundraising um, issue. So I've, I've helped Matt um, Hefter, excuse me, so that brings us with, with MAPS in the 80s and then Hefter in the 90s. And uh, Hefter and, uh, and MAPS um, work, work well together. Um, Hefter with psilocybin and MDMA with, uh, with MAPS to move both of these medicines again into um, Schedule 2. Now, for those that, that don't know this, um, Schedule 1 is drugs like heroin and uh, crack cocaine, and they're, they're substances that have no approved uh, medical use or known medical use and are highly addictive, um, and they cannot be prescribed. So a Schedule II medicine is a medicine like um, Demerol or mor morphine or uh, um, um, or Oxycontin. I kind of wonder how Oxycontin got into Schedule two because I hear it has a high potential for um, for addiction. Yeah, but Schedule two is still drugs that are are strong and have uh, but they have some medical use, but they need to have some con control over them. So um, uh, with uh, Hefter with psilocybin and Maps with MDMA, they're working to move it into Schedule two so that it could be available by. Uh, by prescription. Now, this wouldn't be like you get your bottle of pills, you go home, you take a nice dose, you're all good, and then you go on your way. This is part of a, which, which my film, A New Understanding, shows with psilocybin, that this is part of a therapeutic protocol <clears throat> where the patient or client would go through a couple of months or, of uh, six weeks to a couple of months of therapy with a licensed therapist. Um, prior to the dosing session 
where the therapist can develop a good sense of rapport, understand the needs and the issues of the patient, then the day of the, of the dosing, and there would be a, a male-female team uh, sitting with the individual um, in a very nice, um, they found that it works rather than a clinical hospital setting to have a setting somewhat like your living room. So the patient would be in a, uh, a living room-like setting um, under, uh, with, with two therapists and then medical care if they're needed. And w- w- what's interesting is they found r- under, uh, under uh, normal conditions, these are relatively safe safe medicines the uh the therapy is uh right in the uh, uh in the proper set and setting the proper set and setting you got it is uh it, it uh it, it works very well now there are are screens they do screen people for um for uh, schizophrenia psychosis um if there are any basic biological problems you've got to make sure the heart the liver and the kidneys and everything is working um properly because the experience, um, as a lot of people know, is very intense. So, um, um, yeah, so it, 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 under these therapeutic circumstances, it appears to be quite safe. So the FDA is, has, is moving um, very close to moving it into um, uh, phase three, phase three studies. So it's not something you just get a bottle of pills and go home. And then there's follow-up therapy and integration um, over the next you know, one to two months where the uh, person would get, would get after, aftercare. And the results of this, um, now I'm the filmmaker, not the, not the researcher myself, but <clears throat> the results are somewhere in the range of, um, say, say 65 to 80% um, effective where people have have an effective treatment that works mm-hmm. now to get a get a medicine approved mike as i understand it you have to show that it works better than a placebo and a placebo placebo is like a sugar pill or just a vitamin c pill where you would tell the individual that this is effective medicine it's really going to work right and just under the suggestion they get better and a placebo will work Again, as I understand it, about thirty percent of the time, mm-hmm. you can give somebody nothing. The power of the mind, yeah. <laughs> better, and they'll get better, which is that's that's um, amazing that that the power of suggestion is so strong. So, if you're going to give a medicine and run it through tests, it's got to effectively work better than a placebo. And I don't actually recall what the percentage is, how much better. I think it's 10% better, which is 40%. Mm-hmm. I may have that number wrong, so don't quote me on it. But to have a medicine that's working 65 to 80% of the time uh, with some of these treatment-resistant treatment, treatment resistant, um, uh, 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 pathologies like um, – like maps working with MDMA and uh, yeah, actually, and, I I saw um, I was at the Horizons conference here in New York City uh, a little while back, and Rick yeah. Do- Rick Doblin showed a video of treatment resistant uh, veteran 
suffering from PTSD and we got to watch the before and after uh, effect of him kind of suffering through his, his emotions and then being treated with uh, MDMA. It was, it was amazing to watch. And, and with your film here, uh, A New Understanding, you know, it was just so touching to see these people who, who had gotten this, um, you know, this kind of like almost blessing or miracle to really cope with what, what the heavy circumstances that they're going through. It's, it's, quite, uh, it's quite remarkable. It really is remarkable, and it's been remarkable enough for me to be continue to be involved in this field for 30 years or, or, or over 30 years. And this quality of what it this does, where you can have a veteran seriously contemplating um, suicide, where which brings to mind, as I understand it, we have 22 U.S. service veterans a day committing suicide. Now, some days that may be 15, some days it may be 30, but the average, as I understand it, is 22. And you saw the results in that film that, that, that Rick showed and it, that, so this idea and mentioning my film, a new understanding that, that phrase, a new understanding came from, um, uh, Bill Richards at um, Johns Hopkins University, mm-hmm, and he mm-hmm. said, "The in my film, he says these medicines can even give you a new understanding of yourself." Right. So um, when when we have these veterans who put their life on their line for the their country, have come back, um, perhaps from what I think could be questionable wars, and I wonder about petroleum inter- interests and sure, where course, were the yeah. West. Well, it's it's definitely uh, it's definitely telling, Robert. When when you have uh, I, you know I've, this is uh, something that I've looked into quite a bit. You have these veterans; it's to, uh, averaging twenty two deaths, uh, suicides a day. Uh, it winds up totaling up to more uh, people, more soldiers committing suicide than actually being killed in Iraq or Afghanistan or wherever they're going. Of these places, these unnecessary, you know, violent, aggressive, terrible, horrible tragedies so they must have committed crimes over there or they must have done something bad that they can't deal with or saw something you know that they 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 couldn't deal with so it's a terrible thing that's going on but thank god that there's you know people you know like you and the people over at johns hopskins and and hefter and maps and even uh uh, dr david nutt in the uk who are there's a tremendous amount of this this resurgence into into healing that's that's happening now so it's amazing to see that because we really need it Yes, yes. And when when we see these veterans talk about it, I'm friends with a veteran here in Austin. Um and he um he he's described what he went through over there, mm. how this therapeutic this therapy has helped him and um uh, that he uh life is worth living again and worth and worth um uh worth uh making the effort to live again. So um, this is very compelling when we find a substance that in a very short period of time not only puts a it, – it, excuse me, it doesn't put a veneer over the problem where you're um, tranquilizing somebody or, um, or, or, or soothing, soothing something. This apparently gets to the root of the issue where somebody can – the individual can forgive themselves, forgive the people they hurt, um, and forgive anybody involved with it. 
let let go of it and and move on move on down the move on down the road and it, it seems to be now and this is a seems to be a metal area of controversy in the medical community um it seems to be that what really mitigates this effect is some kind of a deep spiritual experience mm -hmm. it's not simply just altering the molecules or the neurotransmitters in the brain or the levels of serotonin or dopamine it it it, it may have something to do with that but what people share when they share their experiences of having experienced some sort of positive mystical experience that has lasting meaning over time where they don't feel separate from their world where they're not an isolated an isolated human being who's separate from the planet from other people that they're actually part of the system and there's a deep experience of being this life, this world has value that they understand that there's something sacred about them and their own life has, has value. And yeah. that there needs to be more research on it, but this is very interesting that this almost this experience of grace or divine grace here, right. this person is yeah, wanting and to, and this yeah. is uh, this is actually, I mean, yeah, you hit the nail right on the head. And, you know, I know from experience and, you know, from experience and pretty much almost everybody that encounters these things and tries them uh, seems to say similar things. And, and, and this is very interesting, too. And you're speak we're speaking about veterans who are suffering and, and people that need healing and things like that. And in our society, in this Western culture that we live in and, you know, the kind of way that we've been. I don't know, brought up or if some might say indoctrinated or, you know, the things that we, that we believe there seems to be no kind of rite of passage, uh, so to speak. And, you know, and, 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 and there's like a, a kind of a severing, uh, a loss of connection between the, the mystical and the divine and, and, and the spirit, the deeply spiritual, you know, people really experiencing that for themselves on an individual level. And, you know, one of the things that I love that Terrence McKenna always used to talk about was the direct experience of the divine, like, you know, just th that, that direct experience that you have. And, and this, you know, ties into this, uh, to your film as well, people dealing with death, um, you know, giving you a new understanding about life, giving you a new understanding about death, about our connection to one another and the planet and everything. And, you know, this is such a needed, uh, a needed thing here and, and it can really help a lot of people. Um, is, uh, it, it, you know, that being said, like when you, when you first had your experience, did you kind of. Did you get a sense of that right away? Like, did you think like, oh my God, because I, I actually did a, uh, an episode a, a few episodes back that titled it, uh, psychedelics had the, pa have the power to save the world, you know, and, and, you know, it's uh, maybe a bit hyperbolic, but, but I really do think they are of that level of importance. This is a major, major tool here. And I know you do as well. Did you get that feeling from the get go, like from the start? Yeah, yeah. Um, th that's a that's a great question. Um, okay, well, I'll go right to that right to that experience and that time in my life. Um, through my uh, through my high school years, initially, I had uh, some experiences with marijuana when I was in the ninth grade at about fourteen, and then uh, at fifteen, um, say fifteen and in sixteen, had some milder experiences with. Um, 
with mescaline, psilocybin, and um, lysergic acid diethyl amide that we know as LSD. Um, mm -hmm. I was a good student in school. I made uh, made A's and B's. Um, I was stayed out of trouble. Um, good, good, good young, uh, good young teenager. And um, okay, so then um, in my um, in my senior year, was that senior year? No, um, yes, yeah, senior year, uh, 1973. One evening, I was in my home, and I'll try to keep this in a nutshell. I was in my home um, uh, by myself, and uh, I had a, a piece of what back then they called window pane. I imagine it was about 150 micrograms of, mm. uh, of LSD. And as far as I can tell from my layman's point of view, it was very pure. Did, uh, did, you, get, did you happen to get that from uh, – I know you, you met uh, Albert Hoffman. Did he happen uh, to provide that with, to you or – that was years before I met Albert. Oh, okay, um, okay. Understanding this was 1973, I was a senior in high school, but this came from God knows where. Right. Um, and uh, but from my experience, it was very, it was very pure, very clean. And for those that don't know, 150 micrograms, I'd say probably a, a medium, a medium-sized dose of uh, that medicine. So I took it and. Um, I'm walking around my parents' house, which was very beautiful. My mother had it decorated in English antiques, and my stepfather in some German Bauhaus-style um, furniture. I'd, and I'd just grown up there, Mike. I hadn't paid a lot of, of attention to my parents' sense of aesthetics and how <laughs> things look. Yeah. So I'm walking around the house. This can actually medicines can actually wake you up for those that don't know. It's like that it, they can bring some reality to your mind. So I'm walking around the house, actually looking at my parents' home, saying, wow, they, this is actually beautiful. Look at this rug. Look at this painting. Look at this wonderful piece of, you know, Queen Anne furniture or whatever. Um, and I'm appreciating it. And then I, I see this picture of my mom, who had passed away about six months before um, tragically of a of a of a two-year bout with leukemia and i looked at her picture and i really got that she was this human woman she wasn't just my mom or somebody i'd take for granted but she really loved her son and um so i imagine a psych psychiatrist could have a field day with this but i'm not looking at it from that point of view i'm looking at it from my own inner experience so that triggered some love in my heart and then i kind of i i I stepped down the steps into the library in our family house, um, and out of the blue, I mean, this came out of the blue. At this point, I'm a, I'm a teenager. Sure, we went to church now and then on Sunday, Episcopalian church, and but I wasn't spiritual. I wasn't religious. I'm just a teenager trying to get through high school, maybe meet some girls, have some fun with girls, and make good grades and stay out of trouble and uh, this kind of thing. And all of a sudden, there was this feeling that, okay, so one of the first things that came to me was what was, what was happening to me was going to be ineffable. There was no way I could ever describe it. So you're asking me to describe something that I couldn't de describe. So <laughs> be like, how would you describe the taste of chocolate? Right. Well, that's 
difficult, but I'm going to try. Um, so there's this sense of there being this universal power of what I would call divine love or unconditional love that's part of everything that it's always been here because this is the only place there's ever been and it's always been now. And so I experienced my my spirit or myself to be eternal, that death was an illusion and I changed bodies like I might change clothes and um, life had tremendous value and I was deep, I was deeply loved and I was part of this love and that if you wanted to put it in old fashioned religious terms that that God loved me and I was part of God and as such I was like the son of God and then I loved God and then there was this tremendous sense of gratitude of how could I be of service what could I do for you now this is interesting but I, I, like my daughter came to me and she said daddy I want to do something for you or give you something, but everything I have, you've given to me. <laughs> and so when she sings me a song or draws me a picture or I see her playing with her friends now that she's gotten older, that that's enough for me. So similarly, I realized I wanted to be of service, but everything I have, the creation or God or the universe has given to me. So what what can I do to um, to to um, be of service? So there was a sense of of uh, of uh, oh, and there was a sense of that experience being even more real than my day to day consciousness. Mm. That almost a sense of that society we're almost in a form of mass hypnosis or uh, or involved in the same kind of daydream but there's a sense of this was like waking up into the clarity of what was really true and um so then when i got to college and i studied um uh uh studied the medieval christian mystics and um buddhist philosophy and hindu philosophy I realized that the experience I had was not novel and right. it was not u- unique and that people had had this experience back through the centuries and it was not uncommon. Um, um, prior to that, I would have been very afraid to talk to anybody about this because I didn't want to get locked up in a mental hospital. (laughs) Right. Yeah. You go around telling people how beautiful and wonderful everything is and they think you're crazy, right? How weird is that? (laughs) How weird is it? So I had this experience of that everything is basically made out of this phenomenal, unconditional, universal love. Now, I don't want to mislead people in my thinking here. Sure, I understood that. But Dr. Houston Smith who recently passed away, one of the world's renowned um, religious scholars has has said, to paraphrase him, it's one thing to have a peak spiritual experience, but it's a whole other thing to be able to come anywhere close to leading a spiritual life. So while I had that experience, there was no integration afterwards. There was nobody to help me. There wasn't a counselor at school. There were no books to read. So um, I've had my share of, say, learning experiences in life because these medicines are not necessarily 
a panacea. While, while they're very powerful, like um, like dynamite or gasoline or other things, they need to be used um, uh, properly. And you know, uh, uh, speaking as the filmmaker, um, it, it, it right right now they're used in a clinical setting. This research is. Um, so what helps people get better? So I wonder sometimes, like right now they're done in a living room setting. What about in the backyard with some trees? Right. Maybe maybe this medicine would work better in nature. But to be able to run an objective study where you're controlling all the variables um, when you're in the backyard, does a does a big bird fly by that might affect the person how do you work that into the study or whatever or <laughs> if this works if this works for one person clinically what about group therapy maybe it would work in group therapy and if the people are sitting down what if they felt like standing up and dancing or somebody wanted to play some music and if that worked i'm kind of going out on a limb here but if that worked what about um a big concert where people might be uh, microdosing or museum dosing or whatever in a responsible manner and listening to music and dancing together. Could that be therapeutic? So what are the limits of therapy and what are we doing as people? Like, are we just, is it all about the gross national product? And um, certainly we, we need jobs and everybody needs to make a good living, but what about the quality of life right. here in America and in the world? What What's the purpose? Do, do we want to have fun? Do we want to appreciate our lives? Um, and it, so it's, then again, it, it, this is interesting to me, too. As, when I grew up, the mythology was kind of like these are weird, crazy things that are going to make you weird. And this is your brain on drugs and all this weird stuff like that. But once one finally gets through it, the important things seem to be um, appreciating nature, one's connection with nature and valuing nature, and particularly one's family. Um, I haven't had the best track record with being married. Um, I've had three divorces, and uh, I learned a lot. I wasn't the brightest young man and made some mistakes. Um, but I have a son who's 40 years old that I dearly love, and my daughter's 12 years old. And my the most important thing to me in my life now is being a good father to my children. And when I've come out the other side, it's not about experiencing um, self-transforming elf machines <laughs> on the, the ninth dimension of Voltar, although I think... We need more research into what those self-transforming elf machines are, certainly. And some people might enjoy it, like some want to climb Mount Everest and see what's up at the top. Others might want to research self-transforming elf machines. But for me, um, fixing my daughter breakfast or picking her up from school or she, God, she barely let me help her with her homework, but when she will, I like to do that. And um, she's in her uh, bedroom right now. She knows I'm giving this talk, and she told me she'd be very quiet and uh, wait for me. And she was so 
supportive mic um, about me going in here to uh, to talk to you. And awesome. That that means the world to me as as a parent. So I wanted to put that out there because that's a shift for me, something I wouldn't have expected when I was in a teenager that these substances would have helped me reach a spot where the the big thrill in my life if you will is watching watching my children grow up and hearing about their successes and helping them through their uh failures but i'm getting off a little off topic well here. that that's such a i mean you just you just said some really important things and and that and you know that is one of the most important things of all i mean that's you know having a, a loving human connection with with friends and family and 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 that sort of thing i mean you know at the end of the day yeah you, you're right i mean we can like Terrence used to say, like give in to astonishment and, you know, give in to the awe of the machine elves and all that stuff. But at the end of the day, it's like when you're done with all that, it's like, how do you take the tools and, and actually implement them into the world, into society to make this place, this world that we have here, a loving, caring, a wonderful environment. And, you know, just imagine what it could have been like. You you said something about, you know, you not having any kind of integration and that sort of stuff. And, you know, imagine what it could have been like if you had that, you know, if we, if as a society, as a culture, we accepted and embraced these wonderful things like psilocybin and LSD and, and, and all these wonderful teachers and medicines and tools, if we were able to kind of you know, use them and, and, and give them to people in a responsible setting and maybe earlier in life or to help people cope and wake up or sort of, uh, you know, just kind of guide our society around that, that sort of thing. I think it's a, a, a kind of an amazing thing because so many people are taking these things with no idea, you know, about, you know, they're just having experience and then who the hell knows what happens after. I think the, the process of integrating is so important. Um, but yeah, you, you, I mean, that was, that was great. I, I, and, and, you know, waking up and a lot of times there's these misconceptions where people think, you know, they're these drugs, they're going to, you're going to take them and you're going to jump into a river or something. But you said something you said, you know, really brings reality to your mind. And I felt that as well. I had that experience as well. I was like, oh my God, like the, the, the HD on life, like turns up, you know, everything crystallizes, becomes crisp and clear. And it really does feel like, oh, this is the truth. Uh, the curtain that has been unveiled. So, so that's, um, you know, that, that's something that's, uh, that's, that's very, very powerful. Now, just to kind of shift gears, uh, real quickly, um, you, you know, you have these experiences and you're working on the board of maps and Hefter and you're, you know, experiencing all these things in your personal life and learning and growing and, 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 and in the professional world with, with these institutions. So what, what, what made you say like, all right, I want to be a filmmaker now and I'm going to go out and I'm going to make this amazing film. And, and, you know, I I imagine it it came from the passion of the power of, 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 uh, psilocybin. Uh, So, so let's maybe talk about, uh, that a little bit, like, you know, how you came to, to make this film, A New Understanding. Well, um, l- let's go back to Terrence now, and I'll step out on, a, on another limb. Sure. Um, I, gr- I grew up in Houston, Texas, and at the point at that point, Texas, Houston was a much, much smaller city, and there were cow pastures around the outskirts of Houston, and as a teenager, we, will, we were able to get really uh, powerful psilocybin cubensis mushrooms from the cow pastures outside of 
Houston, and we would just pick them and do them. So the mushrooms got in touch with me that way. And then, um, uh, you know, I think t uh, Terrence might have said, well, you know, the mushrooms made you make the movie. <laughs> um, so that was my introduction to the, to the mushrooms. And then I took a filmmaking class when I was in high school. It was just a six-week class. And I made a little film of uh, billiard balls moving around on a pool table. Um, but it, that was around the time we were um, becoming familiar with these uh, psychedelic substances as teenagers. And we thought, wow, it'd be really cool to make a movie on this. And um, then we realized we were only teenagers and um, we'd have to get permission from adults and that wasn't going to be possible and we didn't have the money to do it and then we also realized that with the yellow submarine the beatles had already done it mm. so we uh we decided uh we decided the, not to do that the beat um, the beatles beat you to the punch huh yeah the beatles <laughs> beat it to the punch yeah John Lennon, Paul McCartney, George Harrison, and Ringo Starr did it. And yeah. that's a great movie. But so I forgot about it after that. And then, so my daughter's four years old. That This would have been 2008. She's, uh, she's four years old. And, um, and my second wife, uh, Melissa, calls me and says, you know what? You're, you're, you were almost 50 when your daughter was born why don't you make a little home movie for her and give her some idea of some of your history, some of the things that have happened to you in half a century of living, what's of value to you, what's important, and the kinds of things you want to do or you've done with your life. And I said, Melissa, that's an interesting idea. And she says, and I know a filmmaker who could help you um, help you make this film for your daughter, um, Ro Rosalind Dauber. And, uh, I said, okay. So I, uh, I said, okay, well, I'll meet Roz. So Roz and I met and we decided to do it. And I'm talking about a very, very low budget little home movie for my daughter, which I still owe my daughter this movie. But what happened then, Roz said, I want to interview your father, which she did. My dad's like 88 years old, still uh, out there in north of Houston. God bless him. And, uh, uh, um, uh, um, okay. And, uh, so let's see. Okay. So, uh, <laughs> somebody's just knocking at my front door. Can you believe it? They can go away. <laughs> okay. Let's see. So, um, Roz interviews my dad and she says, and I want to interview a couple of other prominent people. Um, uh, a couple of other prominent people in your life. So she goes out to California and interviews, um, uh, Dr. Charlie Grobe at the uh, Harbor, head of child psychiatry at the Harbor UCLA uh, Medical School. And uh, jo Joseph Subinando, who was the president of the California Institute of Integral Studies in San Francisco at the time. And she came back and said, I think you have material for a movie here. You know all these people from your connections with Maps and Hefter. And... Uh, and good, the guy that was knocking at the door is leaving. Um, <laughs> he can come back. Okay, you, you have material for a movie here. Um, uh, I said, really? And she goes, yeah. 
So I hired her a, 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 a small film crew and just turned her loose filming everybody I knew in the field. Um, yeah, you got, uh, I, I mean, you really have everybody in this documentary. I mean, it's, uh, it's amazing. And it's, it's really, I mean, the content of it is so great. You know, I mean, that's, that's really, to me, what makes uh, a film. And it's engaging and it's thought-provoking and the information is there and it's touching and moving as well. And yeah, and, and, and all these professionals, I think uh, Charles Grobe and, and Dr. Nichols, like you mentioned before, and, and, and um, you know, all, it's just, a, it's, a great, it's a great film. And, and so, so you, you decided to, to put this together then. And, uh, well, oh, go ahead. Yeah, we decided. So, so what, then Roz goes, we need people, subjects who have, who have legally done this in a bona fide way as part of a serious study. So we went to the Hefter Research Institute and said, can we interview your psilocybin patients? And they graciously said yes. So we, um, we interviewed three of the psilocybin patients, um, um, Annie Levy, uh, 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 Matt Meza, and uh, and our woman who was in the uh, in the uh, healthy normal study. Now, two of the people were um, the psilocybin uh, um, terminal cancer anxiety patients, but we have another patient in there. Part of my film, the FDA approved a study, and this is the title of it, to see if psilocybin can occasion a mystical experience in a healthy normal that has lasting meaning over time. And um, Roland Griffiths and his team at Johns Hopkins University have shown roughly 75 to 80% of the time, if you give the right set and setting with psilocybin, you can occasion a spiritual experience or mystical experience that has lasting meaning in a human being over time. So we've got Sandy Lundahl in the film also talking about that. So that's how it got centered onto psilocybin. It could have been MDMA, it could have been ayahuasca, it could have been LSD, but that was ended up being the focus onto psilocybin. So I did not wake up one morning and think, gee, it'd be a great idea to make a film on psilocybin. I'm passionate about this. Let me do it and gather the resources. Roz came to me, and one thing led to another. Um, Mitch Schultz from uh, mm -hmm. DMT, the molecule, was ex extremely helpful. And there's a, another story there with the synchronicity of how I met um, Mitch. Um, uh, um, the synchronicities or the coincidences of people I met and the way things unfolded to make this film, and it wasn't um, – wasn't always easy. There were some challenges. I was raising my daughter as a child. Um, I was also going through a divorce at the time with her mom. And I'm, I'm pleased to say that her mom and I are very good friends now. And uh, her mother gave me her blessing for this podcast today. Uh, and I thank her for that. Um, uh, yeah, so there were some challenges. But I persevered. I almost quit. And then Bill Richards again at uh, Johns Hopkins sent me an email and said, hey, what's happening with your film? I think you ought to finish it. And then I asked my daughter and my daughter said, well, daddy, she, she was about, oh, I don't know, eight years old at this point. She says, well, daddy, 
you've come this far and it means a lot to you, I think you ought to finish it. So with Bill Richards and my daughter encouraging me to finish the film, I, uh, I, uh, I did that. So that's how I uh, ended up making the film, a new understanding the science of psilocybin, which is, uh, it's available at uh, www.anewunderstanding.org. Um, and we also have archival footage um, available because the film's just um, about uh, six, uh, 57 minutes long, but we had 200 hours of footage. So we've taken um, some uh, hours of that footage and also made it available to the public that's not, um, that's not in the film. Yeah, it's a, it's great. I mean, it's, it's just so great to see. And, um, <clears throat> you know, films like this, uh, you know, can really have an impact on somebody because, you know, sometimes it's, it could be a little, it's like, how do you find out about this stuff? How do you find out about, you know, you got to maybe be in the know or, or do some research or something, but a film seems like a very accessible way for somebody that doesn't really uh, know to know. And, and so what, what was your, what, what do you think your goal is with the film? I mean, do you, who, what, what do you want people to get out of it? Yeah. Uh, um, to um, to realize that these um, medicines are are very positive and are he are here to help relieve human suffering. There's a lot of uh, suffering. There are a lot of uh, pathologies out there. There are um, some very resistant um, medical issues that these substances can. Um, uh, very likely address in a um, in an effective manner, and then like like uh, Bob Jesse says, um, there's the betterment of well people, and as I say, you, you you don't have to be sick to get better. Um, just being alive can be trying sometimes, and dealing with uh, just our normal ups and downs of being a human. So I wanted to address that with the film. And so in in order to do that, I wanted to show a little bit of the history of psilocybin, that it just didn't appear in a laboratory in the 1960s, that it um, it grows in various locations all over the world. And um, specifically, it is a history of going back to the Mazatec Indians in Mexico, and they've used it for healing and spiritual needs for centuries down there. Um, I wanted to show a little bit about how psilocybin works in the brain and how it affects the um, neurotransmitters and that it's non-toxic and, um, and safe neurochemically and um, how, how, that, how that works. Then I wanted to take some noted authorities at major universities and have them explain um, how they understood psychedelic medicine to work and what they expected of it and what the benefits are and then what the uh, what any what any issues or difficulties or um, supposed problems might be with these medicines to explain those things and then I have the wanted the three our three uh, patients at the end who are who are uh, what say the, the tip of the iceberg there's a lot more testimony out there than these three patients but in a film I just have time for three. And with cancer patients, um, you've got to get them while they're still alive. Um, 
so I, Annie and Annie and, uh, and Matt, um, passed away, um, uh, before the film, before the film, uh, came out. So that was my goal with the film to cover those four issues and to present it in such a way that it, that it was accessible to the lay person who nothing about these Madisons or perhaps had been misinformed, um, uh, by sensational news or the war on drugs or some um, erroneous article or, or newscast that they may, may have seen and present this as objectively and clearly and as simply um, as I possibly could. Yeah. I mean, you definitely, you definitely accomplished that for sure. Um, you know, it, it's very, it is power. It's pretty powerful when you, you know, see people who are going to die, you know, talking about how they have lost the fear and they've, they've lost the anxiety and they, they feel at, at peace, um, because of their psilocybin treatments. It's, it's pretty unbelievable. Um, you know, it, it is weird that, you know, we live, everybody knows they're going to die, but it's kind of this thing that we just push away to the side. We don't want to think about it. We don't want to talk about it. Um, but it's, uh, it, it is something that happens and, and, you know, if these things can help for that, uh, that's, that's remarkable. Where, where do you, where do you see, you know, cause I, I'm pretty optimistic. I think that, there's enough people out there that are sort of, you know, waking up and, um, you know, this stuff is, is becoming more studied and more researched and we're moving in a, de we're definitely moving in a, a different direction. You know, the, 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 the tide has turned, I think, and, and I don't necessarily see uh draconian kind of, uh, I mean, you know, I mean, we do have the war on drugs and that's and all that terrible stuff, but I think that we're pushing forward two questions for you. One do you, what do you think about the future? And the second question is what would your like ideal version of, uh, our life look like if it was up to you? Yes. Well, um, on the first question, um, I'm going to be talking as a lay person and to get a, a definitive, a real definitive, um, answer on what's, what the future, what, you know, are we looking at, at these me medicines being decriminalized and legalized, available by prescription? How is that actually happening? The, uh, the people at MAPS, the our researchers at MAPS, the doctors at the universities, um, Michael Mittehofer, et cetera, and then the researchers at Hefter are much better authorities than I to talk to. But for, as a layperson understanding this, it, it appears that given that the phase three studies run that say by 2028 um, MDMA and psilocybin are very likely to be um, the MDMA and psilocybin therapy are very likely to be available by prescription um, at those dates and possibly through, I think it's called the, 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 the uh, um, compassionate care clause, some, something like that, compassionate care clause, this could possibly happen as early as 2021. Um, now, there are a lot of caveats there, and so I want to say that that kind of mildly and not have that taken out of context, but it could, ha could happen within three or four years um, at, at the conclusion of these phase three, phase three studies. Now, my personal vision of what would happen would be um, 
a uh, w- when I was in high school, if I had had a counselor, because people are doing this, whether we like it or not, right. there uh, that that so if people are doing it. Maybe we should offer them the kind of services that could help them. So if I'd had a counselor in high school that I could talk to that would understand me, that would have been absolutely wonderful. So um, perhaps we should have some compassionate counselors um, to talk to these younger people when they have a strong experience and not lock them up in cages or put them in a mental hospital or ostracize them. But what I would envision then for in the adult world or the world in, in general would be, um, would be treatment centers or clinics, um, perhaps some urban, um, maybe others in the, in the country where people could go for a longer stay, um, where say somebody might, uh, check in for the weekend uh, and, um, then, uh, have some therapy, have the day of, uh, at the day of the dosing, and then be able to stay there the next day and integrate the experience a bit before they went home. Um, um, currently, right now, when somebody run that is in the study, they go by the university or the university hospital, they have the dosing, and then they go home that night. Um, and that's just the way the system works. But ideally, it seems like you might have a have a have something like a a small hotel or retreat center that was a a, a, a medical um, psychedelic treatment center where people could go and spend the night or perhaps a week. Maybe um, maybe if it was in the country, you'd have a, a garden or vegetable gardens in the backyard or some, a swimming area, um, a kitchen. Uh, it might be helpful for people afterwards to chop vegetables or work with cooking food or weeding in the garden or just getting back to some basics in life. Sometimes with driving around hectically with our cars and uh, um, uh, televisions and computers and iPhones and iPads and all this hoopla, we get disconnected from the basic things of the air we breathe, the water we drink, the food we eat, chopping vegetables helping to grow the plants. Um, these kind of things appear to me to be kind of integrative after somebody's had such a deep interior experience of their own psyche to be able to touch the ground, swim in the water, um, just some kind of basic human things we might have lost touch with. So, And again, there, um, there are those out there that have, uh, I think, written more eloquently than I about what a psychedelic treatment center would look like and how that would uh, 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 be integrated effectively into um, our current society. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, you know, it's, it's interesting. And I, and I tend to agree with you. I think that uh, as this becomes more acceptable and mainstream, you know, in our mainstream world, uh, that we're going to see things like that popping up and that would be good. I'm always, I, I am, I, I am always, uh, you know, well, I'm very aware of the the other side, you know, the side that wants to make sure that these things get uh, banned and locked away. And, you know, the what, what do you think it is? Just what do you think it is about human human beings that they fear these things or they they don't want other people doing them? And, you know, they want to, like you said, lock people away for for this. So what do you think it is about us, our, our human beings that make us feel that way? 
You know, I, I don't know. I, I think people that have these concerns, there's some valid concerns. And oftentimes they've been, all these medicines, all, all the illegal drugs, if you will, are grouped in one category. Right. So uh, sometimes people have lost a loved one through heroin addiction or crack cocaine or um, shooting speed or uh, uh, meth or whatever. And they... Um, they're really angry and frustrated. And here's these class of drugs that are linked with that, and they may not know the difference. There's also, um, understandably, and I've had some casualties in my own life, when people recreationally have done too much psychedelic too soon without any kind of facilitation or knowledge and then no proper integration, sometimes it's opened these people up too fast too quickly, and they've ended up becoming alcoholics or going on to to use narcotics or um, or, or um, not been able to cope with such a dramatic spiritual um, opening. Or once they've opened Pandora's box, can't get the lid on it. No one can help them with what's coming out. And then we have casualties. And certainly the number of casualties that have happened percentage-wise are very small compared to the number of people that have actually done this. If they were really that dangerous, we'd have many more casualties. But there is that possibility. So people may be, uh, uh, um, have heard about this uh, or had something in their own family where there was a problem, even if the percentage was small. So I, uh, I, uh, I, I sympathize um, with with them on that. Um, I think there's there is some valid um, concern, but for for most of us, with with some decent understanding about set and setting, they're really quite quite safe. But I think what happens is people are afraid of what they don't understand. Right, and there's so much media about this back in the 60s of people jumping out of whatever or some of these random things or like when I was in high school all this stuff was coming about out about LSD splitting your chromosomes in your DNA now those studies have been shown to be completely erroneous erroneous and there was a study that came out in the early days about MDMA causing a brain atrophy. I think I might have, forgive me if I'm wrong, but I think the guy's name was Ricard, Dr. Ricard, did some kind of study and it was later shown that what he was using was not even MDMA, it was amphetamine. And um, and the study was wrongly reported that MDMA causes brain damage. There's, there's no basis to that study. It was completely wrong. And similarly, Stan Groff, in one of his books, um, footnotes to detail that that early LSD study trying to show that LSD splits your chromosomes. Again, it's completely erroneous, bad science and incorrect. So that's another reason is this media barrage through, I guess, President Nixon back then when yeah. all this stuff came out through the press, misinformed people. And when it comes out through an authoritative source like Life Magazine or, or ABC, NBC, or CBS, people are going to believe this stuff. So it, it it's still there. So I think for all these reasons, um, 
there are still a lot of people that are understandably misinformed or, uh, or, or yeah, are yeah, or, or, or misinformed. And then again, I think also um, our leaders who have passed the, these laws, they're not researchers. They're not doctors. They, they don't, they're not neurophysicists. And um, they may have been based, I'm speaking a little out of class here, but they may have based when they voted these laws in, have been uh, just as misinformed as a lot of the uh, general public was. So, right. The, 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 yeah. Yeah, the no, blind- that's 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 true. And you're you're right. I mean, they, they you know, they don't know. And, and, you know, they just think, well, drugs, they're just drugs. Drugs make you crazy. Drugs make you out of control. What is that quote by uh, I think it was Frederick uh, Nietzsche who said uh, he's like the, the, the those that uh, those that were seen dancing uh, were seen to be crazy by those who couldn't hear the music. You know, so it's like kind of one of those things where there's just it really is. And, you know, I mean, just go back to your film again. It's just a perfect title because it's 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 this new understanding that we need to to have. We need to open up to this new understanding to see, you know, the the various ways in which psilocybin and and other uh, kinds of medicines can psychedelic uh, medicines can help us. And um, I think also another misconception is people tend to think that, well, if you take one of these things, you're going to totally hallucinate and and you're going to see monsters and you know that's sometimes true but sometimes it's not you know it's a lot of understanding that needs to be had and uh you know with that i'll just say why don't you uh we'll wrap we'll wrap things up and we'll just uh tell people where they can go and find find your work and and find the film and uh and gain a gain a better understanding yeah good good we'll do that and and my my film speaks much even more eloquently than I do in my my uh, uh, stuttering and pausing and trying to explain this. The film's very succinct and explains this and takes it out of the realm of uh, of monsters. In fact, we even talk about monsters in the film and really what that's about. But my film is available and a new understanding the science of psilocybin is available at www a new understanding.org. And um, you can get the film itself there. You can stream it, you can download it. And then there are options to get additional footage as well at uh, www.anewunderstanding.org. And for those of you that are interested, um, all the work with maps is available at www.mapsmaps.org. Dot org maps.org and then hefter is the hefter research institute is available at www.hefter h e f f t e r.org hefter.org and um, that's where um, everything that I've talked about is explained and again I've been talking as a layperson as a filmmaker but to get really detailed information, to be able to look at these um, peer-reviewed studies, this work's been published in the uh, best psychiatric peer-reviewed journals, and all of that information is on these sites. I'm, again, speaking as a, a layperson, uh, just from my heart and off the top of my head, um, uh, 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 doing my best to uh, be a uh, just uh, uh, genuine and uh, 
and from my from my heart again. But all the details you'll find on these websites. Awesome. Yeah. And I saw, you know, Business Insider even wrote about this recently. I think uh, it was a, a February article, how psychedelics like psilocybin LSD actually change the way people see the world. And they mentioned your your documentary in, in that as well. And so, yeah, I mean, look, a Business Insider is writing about it. The future is is optimistic. And yeah, we'll, 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 uh, we'll wrap things up on a positive note, you know, go check out Robert's film. And uh, Robert, it was it was a pleasure to, uh, to have you on. I really enjoyed talking to you. I feel like I I could have, you know, kept talking for another seven hours about this stuff. So, thank, thank you, Mike. It, it, it was a uh, uh, an an honor to be able to talk to all your listeners today, and I enjoyed it very much. And uh, thank you so much for having me on your show. Of course, thank you.